Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing you the latest science news this week is Chris Smith and Kat Arney. Coming up, jockeys reduce race times with a specific seating technique. Physically what happens is that the jockey's legs act like shock absorbers. And it turns out that if you're a horse, it's much easier to just keep a jockey off the ground, but not have to jiggle them up and down with each step that you take. How a meow hidden within a purr allows cats to manipulate their owners. Now a report in this week's Current Biology reveals how our feline overlords do manage to persuade foolish humans to do their bidding. This is research from Karen McComb at the University of Sussex, who thinks that although cats do have a a small amount of this high-pitched cry in their normal purr, they learn very quickly to dramatically exaggerate it in order to get what they want. Plus, the current revolution in the way that scientific papers are published online. The bottom line is now we do have all the functionalities of an online environment that can add to what one can do in print and really enhance the usability of the article. I mean, it's kind of like going to a movie these days and all the previews are in color and with sound and sense around and then you actually get to the movie and it's still a silent black and white film. That's all on the way. Now, imagine you've been told you've won a prize, but you don't know how much it is. It could be pennies or it could be millions. Most of us would be itching to find out about the size of our prize. And now researchers in the States have discovered that uncovering information about future rewards is actually rewarding in itself. And it uses the same pathways in the brain as our response to very basic rewards like food or drink. So food for thought, you could say then. Absolutely, and this is research by Ethan Bromberg-Martin and Okihida Hikasaka, who report their results in this week's edition of the journal Neuron, and they were working with a pair of thirsty rhesus monkeys who'd been trained to choose between two different images on a computer screen using their eyes. Now, in return for picking a target, the monkeys either got a big drink or a small drink. Now, the key point here is that looking at one image brought up a symbol showing information about the size of their upcoming reward drink, while looking at the other image only brought up a random, unrelated symbol. So basically the monkeys could choose whether they get information about the size of the upcoming reward or not. So what do they do under those circumstances? Well, the researchers found that just after a few days of training, the monkeys pretty much always pick the image that tells them about the size of their prize, even though it doesn't actually affect the size of the drink they get. They just want to know what's coming. And the researchers also did a test where the monkeys could choose whether to look at a symbol telling them that information about their reward was on the way, or just a random symbol. And again, they showed a very strong preference for the information about what was going to happen. Well, it's intriguing in itself, but how did the scientists know what brain pathways were doing that? Well, they focused on what's called dopamine-releasing neurons, and these we know are involved in reward pathways in the brain, and they fire when we get rewarded with something. And so the scientists recorded the activity of 47 of these nerve cells in the monkeys' midbrains, and they found that they become very active when the monkeys were shown the symbol for an upcoming big drink, but the symbol for a small upcoming drink actually switched them off, so maybe not so interested in small drinks. Uh, just like me. Uh, Interestingly, the scientists found that the same group of neurons were also activated in the tests where the monkeys only saw a symbol just telling them that this information was on the way. So it looks like just knowing that a reward's coming uh, stimulates this reward pathway. Well, two, two thoughts. One, actually, what does this tell us? And two, 
does this relate to what goes on in the human brain? Because obviously it's one thing to do it in a monkey, but what about a person? Absolutely. It depends how you respond to rewards of drinks as well. But anyway, for a start, it tells us that the same nerve pathways in the brain are responsible for processing actual physical rewards, like food or drink or something like that, and as well as information about upcoming rewards. Now, these dopamine neurons, they're thought to work by adjusting the connections between other nerve cells. They help to teach the brain about basic rewards like food or drink. But these new results suggest that dopamine neurons also teach the brain to seek out new information just as well as these physical needs now of course this research is just done in monkeys and non-human primates but our brains are pretty similar to those of monkeys uh, some of us more than others and it's likely that the same pathways probably are at work in our brains and perhaps these dopamine neurons are very active in our naked scientist listeners as they're thirsting for knowledge i did hear someone say that one way to beat the credit crunch is to use the old adage that planning a holiday is half the fun so stay at home this summer plan two holidays and hey Presto, all the fun and none of the expense. <laughs> now, also this week, there's a paper in the journal Science that explains how jockeys have been able to shave up to 7% off their race times in the last 100 years. And it turns out that it's all down to the way that jockeys sit in the saddle. They don't sit like that in that uncomfortable-looking posture just for fun. There is some method to their madness. And Dr Andrew Spence from the Royal Veterinary College is here to tell us why. Hello, Andrew. Hi there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So what did you do? Well, so it started with sort of a group discussion about this paper in humans where people had found that when you put a backpack on humans that's allowed to slide up and down, they use less energy. And so you mean we bounce were... up and down? I think that was a nature paper a few years ago, wasn't it? When a rucksack, when a person's taking a step, the rucksack bounces up and down on an elastic band and they yeah. use less energy under those circumstances. You got it. Yeah, it's a nice paper by Professor Larry Rome at UPenn. And basically we thought maybe the crouch posture allows the jockey to do the same thing. And physically what happens is that the jockey's legs act like shock absorbers. And it turns out that if you're a horse, it's much easier to just keep a jockey off the ground but not have to jiggle them up and down with each step that you take. Oh, I get it. So if the jockeys sat bolt upright in the saddle like a guardsman at Buckingham Palace changing the guard, then the horse with every step would have to lift the jockey up and down. Whereas if the jockey stands up in that strange and bizarre posture, the martini glass posture, yeah. then the horse isn't physically lifting the jockey up because the jockey is basically countering the movement of the horse by bending his legs up and down. You got it. That's exactly right. And it's, it's hard for a human to imagine what that feels like. But I think, you know, the closest we could get is probably to these Nepalese porters who carry big jugs of water on these bamboo poles that can flex up and down. You know, it's easier to carry something if you don't have to accelerate it up and down each time. How did you actually do the work? Well, so that was interesting. We, there's this whole new class of sensors coming out. And basically, they're the kind of thing that's in your Nintendo uh, Wii controller. So it's the same chip that's in the little controller that allows you to play Wii Tennis. It's a little chip that can measure when it's being accelerated. And so we put those in the saddle and on the jockey, and we took measurements, and we, we compared them. And we saw that, that, yep, you know, presto, the horse moves up and down a lot, and the jockey moves up and down a lot less. Can you take that learning and make differences or changes to jockey's technique to train them so they'll make their horses go even faster? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's so we don't even know. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg, really. So what would be really, really cool to do, right, is to get Frankie out there, get Frankie DeTore out there and, and then put some gadgets on him and then make some measurements on novices. You know, some of these in, our collaborators at the British Racing School take these really, you know, they're really interesting. They're young kids. They're 14, 15-year-old boys and girls who want to be jockeys. And we, you know, go out there and measure them. And you could compare and see how close Frankie is to perfect, and, and who knows, you know, and we could really use it as a training tool. 
Sounds terrific. Thank you very much, Andrew. That was Andrew Spence, who's from the Royal Veterinary College, explaining how jockeys actually move their bodies, effectively doing some of the work for the horse. That means the horse has got more energy to put into running fast. And in fact, since 1900, when they started to adopt that posture, they're going about 7% faster. Fascinating stuff. And now another animal story between monkeys, horses and now cats. Now, this is a message from our cat overlords because it's a well-known fact that humans don't really own their cats, rather that their cats own us. And this is, in fact, why I'm a dog person, not a cat person. And now a report in this week's... It's <laughs> a dog person. I know, I, me, Dr Cat, am a dog person. I, I really hate cats. Uh, anyway, now a report in this week's current biology reveals how our feline overlords do manage to persuade foolish humans to do their bidding. Now, this is research from Karen McComb at the University of Sussex who got her inspiration from her own cat who wakes her up in the morning with a very insistent purr for food that's impossible to resist. Now, as a scientist who studies vocal communication, she was really intrigued. And what she did was made recordings of cat noises and studied them. And she realised that cats were mixing together a low-pitched purr with a high-pitched cry for food. So we can listen to these recordings, judge for yourself. So if we have the low-pitched normal purring... I'm sure that wasn't you snoring out there in the middle before we started the show. It sounds like a tiger. So anyway, uh, that's a low-pitched purr. And now this is the purr that cats use when they're trying to get you to do something. So you can hear they, they're mixing in this kind of high-pitched element in there, which actually uh, people find it very urgent and they need to respond to it. Do we know why? Well, this is it. Now, even people who don't own cats, when they played the two different types of recordings, they found that people did respond to this urgent cry. And it's thought that most animals, including humans, we have this innate sensitivity to needy cries, which is why we respond to crying babies, little puppies and kittens that kind of mule and, and make noises. Now, if an adult cat just meows we tend to get a bit annoyed but they hide their annoying high-pitched meow inside a low-pitched purr. So it's like a poison chalice, isn't it? Exactly, it's very cunning. So it sends the signal that they're hungry, they need feeding but the human owner doesn't realise they're being terribly manipulated by the cats. Now... Um, Karen McComb thinks that although cats do have a, a small amount of this high-pitched cry in their normal purr, they learn very quickly to dramatically exaggerate it in order to get what they want. And she also thinks that not all cats use this, this form of high-pitched purring, and it's probably used in households where the cat has a one-on-one uh, um, relationship with the owner and probably in, in large households where people are less likely to care about the just, cat. Just kick you it. just have to <laughs> meow. <Yeah. laughs> We heard from Bernie in Peterborough who says he shared a cat with some neighbours and it very quickly got all of them very well trained to leave doors and windows open for it. Uh, Good for cats and cat burglars, I should think. Thank you, Kat. Well, the way that scientific discoveries get presented and published is also about to undergo a big change. This week, in fact, for hundreds of years, scientists have been writing up their findings and then published them in journals. These are effectively big science magazines. And when the internet came along and was developed, what many journals began to do was to publish that material that they were also putting into the print edition online. But the problem is that the online environment isn't necessarily the same as the printed environment. And now Emily Marcus, who's the editor-in-chief at Cell, who's one of the world's biggest science journals, is this week going to launch what they've dubbed the article of the future. It's effectively a whole new way of presenting information. And she's with us now. Hello, Emily. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Um, Why do we need to change what we're doing at the moment? What's wrong with just putting up a facsimile edition of of your printed papers on the web for scientists and doctors to download? Well, I guess I... I... There's not necessarily something wrong with it. I think the current format, as you said, was developed for a print 
uh, environment and is very effective for that in communicating information. But the bottom line is now we do have all the functionalities of an online environment that can add to what one can do in print and really enhance the um, usability of the article. I mean, it would, it's kind of like going to a movie these days and all the previews are in color and with sound and sense around, and then you actually get to the movie and it's still a silent talkie. I mean, there's nothing wrong with silent talkies, but you can really use the, I mean, silent uh, black and white films, but you can really use the new technologies you have to improve the article and structure it for an online environment. Indeed. I mean, when I'm trying to read papers that I'm going to talk about here on The Naked Scientist, the scroll wheel on my mouse does get a lot of use going up and down in the papers. (laughs) What are you going to do to make your papers much more engaging and and user-friendly on the internet then? Yeah, so the two main pain points that we're trying to address with this first release of the article of the future prototypes are, one, helping users more quickly identify which papers they want to read. Um, And so for that, we've added in the front... um, more forms of summary of the paper. So in addition to the traditional text abstract that's there, there is now also a graphical pictorial summary of what's in the paper, and there are audiovisual interviews with the author that summarize what's in the paper. So depending on what your preferred mechanism of figuring out which papers you want to read is, you now have more options in going to the paper. So the days um, of having to actually buy a second computer monitor so you can display them all without having to keep flicking backwards and forwards, you're saying those are over? Yes. <laughs> but but just just talk us through the interface a little bit more because I, I know you started but so as I'm reading through the paper and I see say a little bit of information that I think very interesting I'd like to drill down a little bit more about say a particular reference can you do that yes so all of the information now links to hyperlinks to the references and likewise you can start from a reference and go back to figure out where in the paper that reference is discussed so if you have a particular paper and you're looking for where this new one, so the, the entire text is much more interconnected. The entire layout is much more uh, interconnected. Um, and there is also a way to navigate through it based on a, basically a picture. So you can look at a picture, at, uh, illustration, and say, okay, this is the part of the paper I'm interested in, and click on it, and it will take you directly to that part of the paper. Um, so you no longer have to sort of start at the beginning as you did in a print environment and read from the beginning through to find what you want. Now, presumably you've you've tested this out on volunteer guinea pig scientists and, and, and other potential users. What do they say about it? Yes, we have had our team of guinea pigs. Um, so far we've done um, user testing and all of the responses have been incredibly enthusiastic. They've They like the idea of trying to rethink from scratch how to present the information in a scientific article online. Um, We really took a sort of bottoms-up approach. Let's figure out this is the information you want to get across. You have all this ability online. What's the best way to structure it? Um, And not just take what worked in print and transfer it. And they really like that approach. They like what we've come up with. They had some very good suggestions for additional features we could add. So it will be an ongoing, evolving um, project to continue to develop an article for an online environment that has more functionality than in print. Now, obviously, this must involve additional investment on the part of your journal in order to make this much richer online experience. So how are you going to make it pay? Well, I mean, so what the... Actually, the investment comes up, I think, in designing the prototypes. Uh, To date, scientists put a huge amount of effort into what they... into preparing articles for publication in a print format, um, both in terms of the text itself and creation of all of the figures... So there already is a lot of effort that goes into producing a paper. I think with this new type of presentation, what types of information the authors have to provide to us will change, but the total amount um, and workload involved won't. 
So I think now that we've set up the expectations and guidelines for what we need as publishers to be able to present the article this way, the authors will supply us with some different types of figures, et cetera. But um, once the transition is through, the actual workload won't change. There should not be any net increase in cost to produce it in this way. So we can all look forward to a much better online environment. And we understand, Emily, it's your birthday as well today. So thank you very much for joining us on your birthday. You can go and have that glass of champagne now. Thank you very much. That was Emily Marcus, who's the editor-in-chief of Cell, where they're rolling out a whole brand new way of putting information onto the internet in a much more engaging fashion so that it should be much easier to get access to that information and then learn from it. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Well, that's all we have time for on this week's Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Chris Smith and Kat Arney, along with our guests Dr Andrew Spence and Emily Marcus. The Naked Scientist Newsflash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you've enjoyed the news flash, then please check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment that you can try out at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientists.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.